Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here, you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of Healthy Her. Today, we're going to dispel a lot of myths about aesthetic procedures. You probably know that the world of aesthetics is huge and growing every day, but there's a lot of misinformation out there regarding treatments. So I thought it would be really fun to talk about a few myths about Um, filler and something called neuromodulators or or neurotoxins. You may have heard of medications like Botox, Dysport, Xeomin. Those are the medicines in that category. So joining us today is an expert in aesthetics, and her name is Dr. Judith Borger. So welcome, Dr. Borger. Hello, Dr. Brenner. I am so excited to be here. Yes, um, just to give you a little bit of an introduction, my name is Dr. Borger. I have a aesthetic practice called Concierge Medical Arts in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and we do what I call non-surgical aesthetics. So like Dr. Brenner just said, we do a lot of the fillers and the Botox or neurotoxins. Um, we have a wide range of lasers. Um, we do facial services. Um, we do RF microneedling, chemical peels, all of those things that sort of don't involve you going into the OR. Um, and then I also have a podcast. It's called The Aesthetic Doctor. And I love being able to be on here today dispelling myths because that's really what my podcast is really all about, telling people the truth about all things aesthetic medicine. Um, and you're right, there's so much misinformation out there. People, I think these days get more information from TikTok than they get from reliable sources. So I think that's really, um, Amy, why you and I are here here to give people sort of the expert opinion and the expert sources. And I always say I want my podcast and I love the conversational nature of your podcast to sort of be like if you had a best friend that one was an expert and you can really ask them anything. Yeah. So awesome. So a lot of people, I don't know about you, um, Judith, but before several years before I started doing aesthetics, I don't think I knew the difference between filler and we'll just say Botox um, or filler and neurotoxins. So, and I think a lot of people think they're the same thing. So before we get into talking about the myths, do you want to go ahead and explain like what, what does filler even mean? And yeah, what are some of I, the think, I think I think you're absolutely there? right because you know everybody comes to me and they think like Botox will fix everything. Yeah, <laughs> um, they're like, I want Botox for this, and I'm like, oh, it's not Botox. Um, but so really, um, when we really break it down in its most simplest form. Botox, and again, we use Botox as a colloquial name. Botox is a brand name for botulinum toxin. There's four big botulinum toxin on the market. 
Botox, Dysport, Xeomin, and Juvo. Um, we're not going to get into the differences, but realize that, you know, you and I are both licensed practitioners um, that do use the Allergan brand, among others, so we're allowed to use it. But really, people now use Botox as a name for any botulinum toxins, because obviously yeah, that's kind of like Kleenex for tissues. Yeah. I need a Kleenex, but I need a Kleenex. Exactly. <laughs> you could give them, you know, the Huggies brand or whatever. Yeah. So um, Pampers, that, that whole same thing. So, um, yeah, so what Botox really does is it's a neuromodulator. So when we inject it precisely into the muscles that we want to control, um, it, you know, through a bunch of, uh, chemical interactions and enzymatic reactions, what we basically do is we kind of change the neurotransmitter acetylcholine as to not being released in the junction. So on a muscular level, those muscles don't contract or don't contract as much. Like I said, when we injected targeted, um, some of these wrinkles that you see, like if you, for example, now picture in your little living room or in the car, if you're driving while listening to this podcast, if you think about that frown line, you know, when you frown really, really hard, that line gets much, much deeper. The same with the eyebrows or the crow's feet. Like if I raise my forehead, then those forehead lines um, become much, much deeper. So by targeted, injection of a very small amount um, relative to sort of the world of Botox, we can relax those muscles or, you know, almost freeze them from contraction where we want it to. So then your forehead smooths out, your frown smooths out, your crow's feet smooth out because those muscle contractions that really have caused you the wrinkles over time aren't happening again in a controlled fashion. So when right. I think about Botox, an easy way to think about it is that Botox, I mean, and there's exceptions, is really for anything that the average person thinks about the upper third of the face. So like I already said, we can use Botox for many, many more things. And I have an episode all about how Botox works and how we use it. But really, most common areas treated are the frown or the glabella or those 11 lines, the forehead and the crow's feet. Right now, when and I we think those are the FDA approved places, but correct. Um, I, I, I use Botox in other areas of the face, but those are the areas that are FDA approved. But as doctors, we do a lot of things that are, quote, off label end quote. Um, and, and so Botox can be used in other places. It's just not FDA approved for those regions. Correct. So when we talk about filler, Fillers really restore volume where we've had volume loss. So a filler is a gel-like substance. Um, most of them are made out of hyaluronic acid, even though there's other fillers and the, out there made out of, you know, calcium and but most of them are made out of hyaluronic acid. And what they do is it's a gel-like substance that gets injected exactly where there's volume loss to fill that volume loss and give you a little bit more of a plump appearance. A really good um, example is, for example, you know, when, when we have um, on your cheekbones, a lot of times that pre-zygomatic fat pad and the zygoma tends to 
reduce in volume a little bit over time. And what you then get is a little bit more of a sagging appearance to the face. Um, it's subtle at first, but that's kind of what causes your nasolabial folds or your smile lines around the mouth. It makes your under eyes look a little bit sort of more droopy again, because that cheek pad has fallen. So one of the things we're doing with, let's say, cheek filler is just to inject a little bit of volume where we've had volume loss to restore, let's say, that S-curve that we kind of want to the upper cheek. Um, like I've already mentioned, sometimes you can do filler under eyes carefully if they're very sunken. You can do fillers to the nasolabial fold, to the marionette lines, to lots and lots of places. But when we really think about the most basic difference of the two is that Botox reduces sort of the wrinkles by reducing muscle contraction. Filler simply fills volume loss that we've had in certain parts of our face. Yeah, really well said. So um, I don't know how long you've been doing it, but when I first started doing aesthetics, we pretty much with filler, were just filling up nasolabial folds and which isn't, doesn't really get to the the root cause. And so I love that you mentioned of uh, putting it in the cheeks and putting it in the cheekbones and that kind of gives you a lift. And so then you don't need as much in the nasolabial folds and it ends up looking so much more natural. Yeah. I call the cheeks and the cheekbones sort of like the tresses of your face, Yeah, you know, without the tresses and the structure. And you're right. Absolutely. I mean, now we're really even more conscious about things like facial balancing and even enhancing chins and jaw lines and temples. And it, it is really interesting that if you stay up to date with what's going on, how like so many things in like life, so many things in medicine really evolve and change. And, you know, the histologic studies we have now and the ultrasound studies and the MRI studies, it's really fascinating yeah. how much we, how much more we know. Right. Um, so let's get into, you know, I, I, I think it's so exciting of, I agree of just how much medicine changes and that's what's so just so fun about this area of medicine is it's always changing versus now I haven't delivered babies in a long time, but in that area of medicine, and I would, I would wonder if uh, kind of being a emergency room physician is, I wonder if things really change in that arena. Cause in, in, in my old life, when I was delivering babies, medicine didn't change so much in the aesthetic arena versus in aesthetics, it's constantly changing. There's constantly new things, which is what I love about it. I agree. I mean, I think in emergency medicine, there have been some really big breakthroughs. Um, for example, BiPAP, since I trained, you know, we used to have to intubate a lot of CHFers. And now since there's been BiPAP, like, and, um, you know, to a lot of the new um, anticoagulants, but you're right, like, it seems like in quote, regular end quote, medicine, something really dramatically mind shifting comes along every like five to 10 years versus an aesthetics and, you know, or maybe it's also because it's such a newer field. It's such a younger field. We're really just still discovering so much, but it's a such an interesting sort of thing to think about. I completely agree with you, but let's get into busting some myths. Yeah, let's get into it. So myth number one is everybody, we'll talk about the filler myths first, is everyone's going to know I had filler. So 
What do you say when you hear that from patients? Well, um, I guess I would say it depends if you want them to know and you tell them or not. Um, you know, a lot of what I talk about yeah, or is I don't really... want my husband to know. <laughs> well, you know, it depends. So um, I think a lot of it. One thing that I talk about a lot is that I really recommend you go to an expert. Um, and one of the things that the field of aesthetics is a little bit plagued by is that um, certain people with really not a lot of training can declare themselves experts um, and, you know, do like a course. And then there's people like you and I and lots of other practitioners that really take it very seriously, that have years of experience, that have medical backgrounds. And so, you know, when you go to a skilled injector, um, filler especially should integrate beautifully into your face. And, you know, it should be kind of that thing where people are like, wow, Jane, you look really good. Did you, do you have a haircut where you're on vacation? You know, by just, let's say, lifting those cheekbones or making those nasolabial folds not quite as deep or, you know, filling the little like marionette frown lines that it should be subtle and beautiful and almost restoring you to the more refreshed you. Now, you know, something like a lip filler might be a little bit more obvious, um, you know, but but if it's really, really well done, you know, the person that just meets you should never be like, oh, my God, what happened to your lips? Like, Correct. right. So because I think we've all seen those people that have crossed the line. But one of the things I tell my patient is like they didn't cross the line with their first syringe one, two or three. They crossed their line because a either they went to the wrong person that didn't know what they're doing or, you know, it's become sort of like a body addiction of modifying their body and they don't have a doctor like you and I, who's sort of like, Hey, you know what? I don't think you really need more love filler right now. Or we would kind of distort the proportions of your face if we put more filler right here and it just wouldn't look good. Um, so if it's done well, you know, you should look like that rejuvenated you of maybe five or 10 years ago. Um, and you know, yeah, it's, possible that people will notice but again it's if it's done well they wouldn't notice in a like oh my god you fat filler right here point they would more notice like a wow what's what's different you look great right myth number two i it's kind of piggybacking on this so probably just a little bit more expansion is i'm not gonna look like myself or yeah. i want to do what's natural or I, I may even hear things like I want to age gracefully. Absolutely. And, and one of my biggest, biggest um, beliefs is that I want to meet every one of my patients where they're at in their journey. So, you know, you can age gracefully and be age appropriate and get Botox and a little bit of filler. Like the two are not mutually exclusive. And again, like, I think we talk this whole, like, I want to look like myself again, has to do with respecting the natural balance of your face. That makes you beautiful, respecting the proportions of your face and doing filler in a very natural, subtle and artful way. And so you're right. It is exactly what we talked about. Um, 
And it's not going to make you look like Joan Rivers tomorrow if you get a little bit of Correct. filler. Correct. Like people like that, like Joan Rivers, Goldie Hawn. Um, Demi Moore. Yes. Courtney um, Cox. I mean, there's some that have really kind of crossed the line a little bit. Um, yeah. But again, that is not procedure number one, two, or probably even 20. Right. I mean, I, I wonder even how much, how many syringes of filler do you have to get to get that kind of puffed up unnatural look. I would say at a minimum 10. Yeah, I agree. Minimum. I completely agree. And that's what I'm saying. It's not procedure one, two, or even 20. I mean, it is like, yeah, I mean, at that point, you know, I think there's really um, a lot of mindfulness and maybe psychological work that yeah. would probably need to be done. And, and, you know, again, I tell people no all the time in a very kind way by explaining to them, like, look, um, if you want to do this, like by just throwing some filler in here, it's not going to look good because it's just going to make that area, um, you know, too prominent. Um, what we really need to do now is put a little filler over here or do some skin tightening or some skin resurfacing or things like that. Yeah. The other thing is, is one syringe of filler is about a fourth or a fifth of a teaspoon. So it's really not a lot of volume. And so for most people, if they're getting two, three, maybe even four syringes of filler for a um, kind of a filler virgin, that's really not that much volume. Correct. Correct. I think it's a great thing to rem to remind people of that each syringe is really quite minimal. And again, if it's well distributed, well placed, and that's why, you know, these are not the kind of things where you go to the Groupon place, right? You go to the person with a lot of medical training who's going to give you a beautiful, natural result and also find out what it is that you're looking for so that we can work with your goals to get those outcomes you care about. Right. Let's move on to myth number three about it's filler is just not safe. You know, that's also not true. Like totally busting this myth right now. Um, filler is very, very safe. I mean, there are millions of filler procedures done nationally and internationally with very, very low risk of complications. Of course, every time we inject something in your body, every time there's either medication or a procedure done to you, there is a risk. So mm -hmm. we should disclose that risk to patients and answer all their questions like vascular occlusion, like the risk of infection, so on and so forth. Um, I think what's really important though, is that people realize that in the hands of, again, expert practitioners that follow the guidelines that are well-trained, that use sterile procedures, that use approved product, um, you know, it's an exceedingly safe procedure when we look at the statistics versus some other stuff that goes on in medicine and in life. So, of course, there's risks. Um, you know, the most dreaded one is vascular occlusion. But again, the way you can mitigate those is really to have a skilled injector and also listen to their advice. Right. 
as well as, like you said, um, a skilled injector who, heaven forbid, if they do encounter this rare complication, they don't know how to manage it appropriately. Oh, absolutely. I had one of the nurses at my hospital tell me the story that she went to somebody um, who um, shall remain unnamed, but they literally told her like, well, you know, if we hit an artery or something, we'll have to rush you to the ER. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, no, you know, like, no, sure the just ER like is equipped to handle this. Well, I know that we have hyaluronic acid, but, you know, I like you, I mean, I can handle the complications, right? Like I have vials and vials of hyaluronidase in my office. I have aspirin. I have all these things. The same with your basic allergic reactions. You and I were doctors first. And as doctors, we know how to manage patients and how to manage emergencies. So you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you're bringing that up is, you know, a person should be able to handle the procedure, but it's probably even more important that your physician or practitioner knows how to handle the complication that could possibly, even if it's a tiny percentage chance, arise. Right. And that you're doing enough to be able to recognize a potential complication. So correct. Um, of course, you mentioned, correct. You mentioned hyaluronidase. I would imagine, um, since I think most people don't understand what filler is, they probably also don't understand what hyaluronidase is. So you want to explain like what hyaluronidase is and how it's used? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Um, you know, it's so easy for us to get I into know. some of that shop talk. <laughs> so like I said, hyaluronic acid is what most fillers are made of. Um, one of the other things that makes hyaluronic acid fairly safe is that we have something called hyaluronidase that is an enzyme that eats hyaluronic acid in the most basic things. So it's a reversal agent. It's a dissolver. So, um, you know, like we kind of hinted at the most dreaded complication of a hyaluronic acid filler is a vascular occlusion, which happens if the filler accidentally is injected into a blood vessel and clots that blood vessel up. And then anything that is sort of downstream of that block blood vessel loses its blood supply and has the risk of necrosis and death, um, which is obviously the bad, bad, bad complication of any filler. Um, the nice thing about having hyaluronidase is that hyaluronidase can dissolve the filler that's causing the clot. Mm -hmm. So like we said about being prepared for complications, it is standard of care for us to have multiple vials of hyaluronic days in our fridge so that if we think a vascular occlusion has happened or a vascular occlusion has happened, that we can dissolve it to relieve that clot and restore blood flow to the tissues that have had compromised blood flow. Great. All right, next time, next uh, myth. Filler is painful and there's lots of downtime. Not really. I mean, I mean, it is a needle in your face. Yes, and yes. I think there are some areas of your face that are are a lot more sensitive than others, but yes, um, I, I'm sure in your practice you have little tips. I was just gonna to say that. I was just gonna say less that. Painful. So, what do you have in your practice as options for yeah, so, patient comfort? Yeah, like like that's what I was saying. Not really. Like, um, you know, it's it is not. There is a needle that goes into your face, um, and 
obviously there's the pain of the injection. There are things that we can use to make the injection less painful. So the easiest one to think about is simply icing the area to kind of um, stun those nerve endings a little bit. And it's amazing what even just a little bit of ice can do for you to not feel a needle going through your skin. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, a lot of fillers have lidocaine in them pre-mixed. So as we inject, let's say after the first injection on the periosteum or for kind of the patient perspective on the bone, that area gets numb. So, you know, subsequent injections hurt a lot less because we already have some of that numbing medicine in there. We also use a lot of topical numbing medicine, for example, um, for lip filler um, or other areas, we put a little bit of topical lidocaine on to numb your skin. And lip filler is probably one of the most painful one because I don't know if anybody's ever like tweezed the hair on top of the lip or had to like pop a zit, even though you're not supposed to pop them. You know, you're just like almost crying. Um, So the other thing I do is I um, use nerve blocks. Um, Again, from my practice, I'm very familiar with the nerve blocks on the face. So sort of like your dentist does a nerve block, I do for my um, complex lips, I do a nerve block on other parts of the face so that the, the nerves that supply that area are really numb. I combine that with a topical. I combine it with ice. Um, We also have like little vibration devices um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, again, the vibration on the bone kind of works with works to trick your brain to kind of not notice the needle pricks. And I think, you know, even people that have a real phobia of needles, meaning they're really scared of needles. I mean, I've really not had anybody, no matter how scared they were of needles before to like not make it through a filler injection, because I also support them. You know, I tell them, Hey, if you need a break, We'll take a little break. We'll do it slow. We'll do it easy. I'll use the smallest needles I can. And and then sometimes in certain areas of the face, also the use of cannula, where I only make one needle stick and then I tunnel a cannula in and I distribute the filler that way so that we don't need repeated needle sticks. So there's definitely, again, ways in which your skilled practitioner can absolutely mitigate your pain. Will it ever be like getting a massage and a facial? Probably not, but it definitely shouldn't be something that, you know, takes you a lot of gearing up to, um, to do, or that should be, you know, impossible to do, or you never want to do again especially once you see those results. Yeah, that was a really great overview of, I mean, we do all of those things as well. I think that was a really good comprehensive uh, list of all the things we do for patient comfort in our office. Um, I'm just curious for the nerve blocks, I started giving, when I do lips um, particularly, is I started giving people the option is I can do a nerve block the downside is you're going to be numb for a while. And so I usually give patients a choice. Or are you doing it on all of your, all of your lips? I have recommended on all of them. And to be honest, I only do the upper lip um, because I feel like when I craft and sculpt lips, I do a lot more injections in there, especially to get that Cupid's bow perfectly. And I normally recommend it to them. They can decline, Same. but it is sort of interesting that especially as the lower lip only has topical and doesn't have a nerve block. When I then do my, you know, three or four points that I inject in the lower lip, they're like, Ooh, I'm so glad I got that nerve block. Um, because yeah. really like with a nerve block, people don't feel 
anything. And I've had a lot of feedback that people might have gotten their lips done somewhere else where they didn't do a nerve block. And they're like, man, that nerve block is magical. Yeah, it really is. It makes a big difference. Yeah, I recommend it. But of course, I don't force anybody into it. Yeah. So as we're talking about lips, um, have you ever heard patients say, well, I'm, you know, there's a lot of hesitation about doing lip fillers. Um, Number one, that if you put fill in your lips, that they're going to get stretched out and then make them saggy or that they're going to look again, overdone and look like a duck. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're kind of like, I think busting some myths very comprehensively from all the different angles. So like you mentioned earlier, one syringe is one amount. I tell people all the time, we build lips over time. You know, even if in the end you want maybe more than one syringe, um, because you've had a lot of volume loss, we'll do one at a time and build it over time. Right. And you're not going to have Kim Kardashian lips after your first syringe or filler. second, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, um, so again, it's, um, those lips that everybody sees, they have a lot and a lot of filler in them. And again, there's advanced injection techniques where we distribute it equally. And I think, especially for lips, like for everything else, like look at people's before and afters, look at their Instagrams, look at their websites, look at their Facebooks. Um, Especially I think with Instagrams, there's a lot of before and afters out there now and really look at whether you like your practitioner's aesthetic or not, because there might be some people that are really good at what they're doing, but you just don't agree on the vision as them. So if you already don't really love what they're doing, like find somebody where you can go to their social media and be like, wow, these look really natural or these look really plump or these look really like I would want my lips to look. But no, I mean, again, one syringe or two syringes isn't going to stretch out your lips. Of course, if you were to get five syringes and get those big duck lips, there would be a little bit of stretching. But our body is really good and that tissue is really, really flexible. So if you get that one syringe and let's say you decide you never want it again, your lips will just go back to looking like they did yes. before after it wears off. And there's that's all there is to it. You're not committing to having them done every year, even though most people love how it looks and want a little bit more. Um, but nothing bad happens other than it wears off for both Botox and filler. Right. So let's move on to Botox. Common question I may hear, I don't know if you hear this in your practice, is, well, I've heard that if you do this, there's a risk that your face can be frozen forever. I wish. I know, right? I'm going to be honest. Like, I wish. That wouldn't mean my Botox would last forever. And if it's well done, like, that would be so great. Um, now, uh, that really doesn't happen. I mean, in Allergan studies, who are the makers of Botox, the average duration until there was um, – a clinical point where people felt like, you know, they wanted more was on average 92 days. So that means half the people it lasts a little bit shorter, half the people it lasts longer. You know, Botox is a medicine and like every medicine it has what's called a duration of action, which means it only lasts so long in your body and then your body breaks it down. Your nerve terminals get rejuvenated. Your enzymes get rejuvenated. Like 
in order to stay alive, your body continuously turns itself over. With that turnover, it breaks down both Botox and fillers because they're both sort of like naturally occurring. Yeah, well said. Once you stop, or I'm sorry, once you start doing Botox, you can't stop. So we should. Well, psychologically, place. that might be true. I know, <laughs> because right? that's about like... the most magic thing ever um, that you want in your life. But no, absolutely. Like we just said, it just wears off and you will go back to over time looking like you did before. You know, when it, what happens, and this is how people sometimes stretch it out a little bit. You know, once I make your face all smooth with Botox and you don't have the movement, the first thing that happens is that gradually some of the movement will come back. The lines don't quite come back yet. And then you wait a little bit longer. And then when you have made those original expressions that cause your wrinkles for long enough, the lines slowly will start coming back. So, you know, again, there is, I always tell people it's sort of like dyeing your hair. You know, some people see the first hint of gray and they run to their hairdresser like that first line. Others are like, ah, a little bit of root looks kind of good. Like, I don't mind yet. I can I can wait a little bit. And that's the same for Botox. I definitely have those people that are like, I love when I can't even make a big frown. Like as soon as their frown comes back, they want more Botox and that's appropriate. I am more in the camp that I'm like, I kind of like lifting my eyebrows. So I re-inject myself just before those lines come back. Um, and there's everything in between. But if I never did Botox ever again, the only thing that would happen is that my forehead would move as expressively as it normally does. All my children would know if I was angry and frowning. And then over time, the lines would just come back. Yeah. I kind of relate it to when someone says, once you start, you can't stop. I think it's along the lines of... Uh, most people just really like it. And so it's kind of like this year I went on a, a vacation with my husband for our 20th anniversary and we stayed at the most amazing hotel. That's not how we usually travel. Like it's kind of in the like travelers, like one of the best hotels in the world. And Where that's did not you go? Tell us. Oh. to this place called Jade Mountain in St. Lucia. Oh God, that is I, on my wanting to go list. Oh, I mean, it's the problem it. is, is, how do you ever You're go back forever. to like, how do you ever go back to just traveling like you normally do? Because it was so amazing. So that's kind of the, you know, analogy I make is once you start doing Botox or filler is you just usually like it so much that, you know, how do you stop? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I completely agree just because of what it does and the freshness and the smoothness and the mental kind of pick me up and the loving what you see in the mirror. You're right. A lot of times Botox is the total gateway drug. I mean, once you get it, especially if it's well done, I mean, nobody doesn't love Botox. Yeah. All right. Uh, last one is nobody knows the long-term effects of Botox. I think that is also a myth. I mean, when we talk about Botox, you know, Botox has now been licensed in the United States for about 30 years. Um, so we have 30 years of data. And, you know, other than for cosmetic procedures, 
Botox has uses for a lot of like spasticity. So um, people might be familiar with things like cerebral palsy, where due to brain injury, um, you know, patients uh, get contractures of like their big muscles. And sometimes those can cause limitations in movement and significant pain. Um, same things like esophageal spasms and things like that, where people are unable to eat because their esophagus can't pass food again with certain neurologic conditions. So, you know, those people get hundreds and thousands of units of Botox injected and they have for about 30 years. And so we know that at least that 30 years plus whatever they did before to study it and get a license of data, we know that it's safe. And as I said, these are people that get hundreds and thousands of units injected for cosmetic purposes. You know, we now have several decades of data and, you know, your average forehead is what, like 20 units of Botox and 25 for the frown. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, using like just throwing out numbers, but, you know, we have data on people getting hundreds and thousands of units injected for decades. Um, So yes, do we have hundred years of experience? Probably not but we do have quite significant experience. And again, Botox or botulinum toxin products, there's millions of procedures performed worldwide every year. So there's actually an an incredibly large body of data that's out there. Yeah, I think uh, I was informed is it's one of the most studied medications on the market, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been so helpful. I hope we, uh, I think we did a really good job of educating our listeners about, uh, about a, a lot of these myths and about Botox and filler and explaining what the difference is between the two. Because if I didn't know it at age, you know, 35, I would imagine a lot of people are in the same boat. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure and I completely love doing it. Like it's your mission. It's my mission to really educate people and, you know, have them make the best choices for them that are wise and safe choices. So this definitely helps. Thank you for doing the podcast. I love your podcast. And um, yeah, and we're going to talk next week on your podcast. We are. Remind everybody again, how to find, how to find you. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it's going to be in the show notes. Um, But my podcast is called The Aesthetic Doctor. Um, My name is Dr. Judith Borger. It's on all major platforms. It's on, you know, Apple, iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all of that stuff, iHeartRadio. You know, my website is theaestheticdoctor.com. And my practice website for those of you in North Carolina or locally is Concierge Medical Arts in Fayetteville, North Carolina. My Instagram is at Dr. Borger and the doctor is spelled out. Um, So yeah, I would love to connect to you if there's any questions this race. Um, I'm happy to answer them. I'm sure Dr. Brenner is happy to answer them. And I just want to thank you again for the opportunity to let me do this. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice 
practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.